All right, we are continuing um, in this Advent series we've been doing called Not Yet Christmas, where we've been looking at the almost messiahs, if you'll let me borrow the language um, or use the language of the New Testament. And so we've looked at the son of Adam and seen how Noah, his father Lamech, said, this is the one who's going to give us rest, and instead we get a worldwide flood. And then we looked at Joseph as there's this anticipation that his brothers are going to bow down to him and even the sun, moon, and stars. And then there's this juke at the end to the line of Judah. And we're still waiting for the one who would be king of Israel. And this morning, we're going to look at the son of David. And I hope for most of you, that language rings a natural bell when we talk about Jesus Christ, because it's throughout the gospels that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. But obviously... David had other sons, physical sons, part of his own body, uh, you know, part of his, uh, his, um, his own household. And as we will see this morning, there's a correlation, a relationship, what the author of Hebrews calls a type, a shadow of the reality of Christ found in David's son, Solomon. So we're going to look at Solomon's reign this morning as we continue. And I want to remind you again that our desire with this series is to use the failures of the Old Testament and the remaining longing. Is this it? Is this it? No, right? The letdown that kept Israel looking forward to the one who was to come. We want to use it in the same way to prepare us for this Saturday to have the same heart and anticipation for the fact that when we announce Sunday or Saturday morning that Christ the Lord has been born this day, we feel the weight and excitement of that reality. And so if you would open up again to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we begin appropriately with God's words to David. Now, I'm going to set us up a little bit, and then we'll read a little bit, but David has an idea. He's settled in Jerusalem. He's finally brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, where he's ruling and reigning over Israel for, and he says, I want to build a temple. No longer do I want the Ark to live in the tent that we call the tabernacle, but I want to make him a house. He says, I have a house, which again, for a David is a big deal, right? Because he spent the last seven years on the run from King Saul, okay? And so he tells Nathan, his resident, you know, court prophet this, and Nathan goes, great idea. But then Nathan goes home, goes to sleep, and God speaks to Nathan, and he says, no, 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 you got to go back and correct that. You presumed to answer. And so he goes back, and he basically says, one, I don't need a house. I don't dwell in houses. I never asked for a house. But two, Because you desire to do this, and I love your heart, David, your son will build this house, but not you, because your hands are stained with blood. You are a man of war. But then he says something else. He says, more importantly, David, I'm going to build you a house. And we get what scholars and theologians call the Davidic covenant, a promise that God makes here to David about his future. And this is where we get the idea of the son of David. And so I want to draw your attention here to uh, chapter 7, verse 11. 
From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, awkward verse description there or division, but look at the and following, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your, sh your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded this morning of the words of Paul who says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we want to be able to trace the line here from this promise you make to David, a man after your own heart, as the king of Israel, to the king of kings and lord of lords that we celebrate at Christmas. And so as we pass through the passage of a possible Messiah, the son of David, Solomon himself, would you open our eyes and would you stir our hearts with desire and would you prepare us afresh for your coming? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy, I think, because of our familiarity with David or even our familiarity with lineage monarchies, blood monarchies, right? Where a father's son and then his grandson and so on and so forth rule to miss how significant this promise is. Israel's never had a blood-based monarchy, right? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. But David is selected out of the tribe of Judah. And so the promise here is that David's household will be the permanent family ruling over Israel. And in fact, the family of David continues to rule uninterrupted until the exile. Um, whereas the northern tribes that split away constantly on rotation go through different reigns and kings as one king is assassinated and then another and so on and so forth. But this entire time, it's David's children who sit on the throne. And if you read the um, genealogies of the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, you can count many, many, many kings on that list who ruled over Israel. And it begins here. But there's also kind of an intensity to this promise, isn't there? He's going to build me a house his throne will be forever, right? It's, it's strongly stated. And there's also a mystery to it. And the mystery is because here he says, your sons are going to reign perpetually. But as I mentioned, eventually Israel gets the boot. They're kicked out of the land. They go into exile. And from that point on, all the way to the days of Jesus, they no longer have a king of any sort because they live under the reign of Babylon and then under the reign of the Medo-Persians, and then Greece. And by the time we get to our New Testament, they're under the reign of Rome. And so who is king in the area of Israel in the days of Jesus? King Herod. 
an Idumean from the line of Edom, right, from Esau's line, appointed to rule over the Jews. That's why when you get to the crucifixion story and the Jews express that they don't have the right to put Jesus to death, so Caesar has to do it. They don't have capital punishment as part of their privileges because they are under the thumb of Rome. Okay. And so the question becomes, how is it that one of David's sons will reign forever and ever? How is it that David's household will continue when it doesn't? Those are the things that are involved in this, but we have to begin at the beginning and David's predecessor, or excuse me, David's uh, child who takes the throne after him is Solomon. Okay. Now, Solomon becomes king. And because God loves David, God speaks to Solomon in a dream and he says, Solomon, I loved your dad. I want you to succeed. I want to give you a gift. Ask of me anything and I will give it to you. And Solomon smartly says, I'm just a kid. And I've just been put over the people of God. Give me the wisdom to do this job well. And God says that he'll do so. And he says, and on top of that, because you didn't ask for long life, because you didn't ask for wealth, I'm going to give you those things as well. But it's not just personal prosperity that we find in the days of Solomon. We find the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel, the high mark of the Old Testament, the glory days of God's promises. Okay. I want to show you what I mean, and to do so, we have to turn forward in our Bibles to the book of Kings. I want to just draw your attention to some statements about the days of Solomon or the rule of Solomon or the times of Solomon, however you want to see. I want you to see how good they are. Okay. And so notice this statement in 1 Kings chapter 4 in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Now, those of you who know your Bible, that probably rings a cross-reference bell. It reminds you of something else. It reminds you of the promise God made to Abraham. Abraham, your children will be as the sands of the sea. Check. We're there. Okay. Notice what it says. They ate and drank and were happy. And then notice this. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That is the most of the promised land that is ever actually in the hands of Israel. This is the largest territorial borders that Israel has at any point in their history. So they have the land that is promised. They've populated it as God has promised. And they have peace and prosperity. Look at that line again. They ate and drank and were happy. Sometimes we try and imagine what heaven is like. But I would suggest, at least for this morning, a different way to think. What is heaven on earth like? Okay. And what we find in the reign of Solomon is society at its best. Government at its most functional. 
a kingdom that is prosperous and peaceful and beautiful, that is ruled wisely and justice is administered. Life is good. Okay. When your grandfather says back in my day, he only has a shadow of what we see here. Okay. When we look at the pressures and the frustrations of our time, I mean, just, just that one statement there, they ate and drank and were happy. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like America or to some degree any place on earth right now. It seems like a time that is especially tumultuous, frustrating, impoverished, dark. But the days of Solomon were truly good. Let's look at more of it over here, flipping forward a few chapters. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to chapter 10. Now let's just read together, beginning in chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no breath in her. Now, just a side note before we read any further. Have you noticed how exhaustive that list is? She's not just impressed by, you know, this big, beautiful temple or this big, beautiful palace. She's impressed by the way the servants are dressed. She's impressed by the way the table is set. Okay. It's as if Solomon has mastered every element of good housekeeping at the royal level. All of it stuns her. And notice what she says in verse six. She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpasses the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now, that's a pretty great report card, okay? If Solomon was running a Michelin uh, a restaurant, this is like four Michelin stars, you know. But it's clearly more than that, isn't it? Here is a woman from another nation who has her own gods. And here she says, blessed be the Lord of Israel. And again, if you read your Old Testament closely, this was part of the plan and purpose of Israel as a people. They were to live so close to God in a way that reflected God's goodness so much that the other nations would go, huh, how is it that they're doing right what none of us can seem to get right? How is it that they have righteousness and justice and peace and we do not? One of the prophets, I believe it's Jeremiah, compares Israel's destiny to a beautiful sash that God wanted to wear to enhance his own beauty. 
And unfortunately, the prophet goes on and he takes this sash, he buries it in the ground and then puts it on after it's ruined and says, this is how things turn out. But their purpose was to make the goodness of God visible on earth. Okay. And it's happening. Fame is going out, but not just the fame of Solomon, the fame of the God of Israel. I would suggest what we see in Solomon's rule here is summed up in the word glory. And glory is kind of hard to define. Like if, if you try and hit the dictionary route, especially with the Hebrew word, it means something that is weighty or heavy. But I would suggest to you when we look at this, what is it that makes Israel under the days of Solomon glorious? We see wealth. We see beauty. We see power. And we see fame. And all of those ideas tie into the idea of glory. Okay, When we talk about God being glorious, we mean that he has an abundant amount of resources and ability. That's wealth and power. It means that he is beautiful, magnificent is a related word to glory. It means that he uh, is worthy of praise, right? Fame, it's all tied into this idea. And not only is Jerusalem manifesting the goodness of God in keeping his law and justly administering his will, but it also has the temple. Okay, and if you, if you read the description of the temple and look at the precious metals, there's not really a comparable building on earth. Like, we're very good at building high, and we do that. So we have, you know, the Empire State Building, we have the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and things like that, and they're impressive in their own right. But the temple is covered and coated in gold and silver. And the altar stands above the crowds and burns continuously with the worship of God. And most importantly, when Solomon dedicates it, just as it was for the tabernacle in Exodus, God's spirit fills it. His glory enters into it and the place is filled with smoke and the priests can't even do their job. This is where heaven meets earth, where God truly dwells. This is, at first glance, and we shouldn't look away too quickly, the fulfillment of all of God's promises and purposes for Israel. Solomon appears to be truly the son of David. In fact, if you continue reading this chapter, it goes on to talk about Solomon's great wealth, and you'd have to do the conversions on your own. But he comes away as still being the richest man who ever lived, which is insane, because not only are we good at making tall buildings, we've become very good, at least a handful of us, at making money. Ridiculous amounts of money. But even today, Solomon's recorded wealth outstrips the richest of our times. Okay. And that riches isn't just something that he has. It's something that has enriched the entire kingdom. Notice what it says here in chapter 9, verse 27. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. So this is not a rich king and a poor people. This is a rich kingdom where everybody has benefited. In fact, back in chapter 4, you don't need to worry about turning there. In uh, chapter 4, I believe it's in verse 27, 
it says that every man sat under his own vine and his own fig tree. Okay. And that probably doesn't say much to you since you don't have a vine or a fig tree or want one. But the point is that each man had his own property and it was yielding beautifully. There's an egalitarian economy of abundance. Okay. So much so that that language occurs again in your Bible. Micah promises that one day again, God will have it so they sit under their own vine and their own fig tree and none shall make them afraid. But he's drawing that language from real life, from what actually happened in the days of Solomon. Okay. And so it's beautiful. It's glorious. It's truly righteous. Solomon is truly wise. And so it's rightly administered. It's prosperous and it's attractive to their non-Jewish neighbors. It's doing everything Israel is supposed to do. And yet in the kingdom of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, in the reign of Solomon itself is the seeds of its own destruction. But before we look at that, Again, I just want you to reflect on the fact in your own heart of how significant this image is to us. When we write utopian works, works about the place we're all looking for, it looks like this. When we look at what's wrong with the world, we look at it in contrast to this. What I'm suggesting to you is each and every one of our hearts knows what the world should be and, and not the world in, in, that we talked about in the days of Noah, right? A, a world that is without violence, but in terms of a flourishing uh, society, in terms of a prospering people. When you get to the end of your Bibles, you find the new heavens and the new earth and a new city of Jerusalem. And it's amazing the parallels you can draw between Solomon's Jerusalem and the one in Revelation. The one in Revelation outstrips it by far, but the trajectory is one that is very clear. There's a relationship here. We write these works. We write our critiques. We long for these things. We even work for them. And the reason why I'm hitting this so hard is because sometimes we settle for talking about heaven, but we neglect the reality of the kingdom of God. We neglect the reality that when Jesus talks about what he wants and what he's here for and what he'll accomplish, it has more to do with this than it does the paintings of Michelangelo and floating cherubs and, and clouds and things like that. What Jesus came to do is make life as it should be. And Solomon reflects that. He images that. And so do your hearts. Your longings, your frustrations, sometimes your constant striving to get things to fixed for your neighbors and your city, they reflect these things. But you also know that history is filled with stories like this that share the same ending. I was trying to think of utopian stories that we all know, and the first one that came to mind was Atlantis. And it occurred to me that Atlantis is not a story of utopia, it's a story of the fall. Right? It's a story of what was lost. It, it has more to do with the Garden of Eden than it does the days of Solomon. 
But I think the main reason why we don't have stories like this is because they all end the same way. Even if we say there was such a place, it is no more. How many revolutionaries, how many politicians have platformed on a vision like this? How many ambitious people have sought brave new lands to start their own society where all men are created equal, for example? And this is what they were after. And yet we can't find it. We can't establish it. And most importantly, we can't keep it. And I would suggest to you it's because Solomon's kingdom, like every other kingdom of earth in its glory, is a glory of contradiction. Here's what I mean. I mean that everything we've just read is true, but so is the rest of chapter 10. And here's what we discover. We discover if you keep reading um, all the way going back to chapter 9 and and through chapter 11, you keep reading, you will discover a couple of things. One, that this beautiful temple that Solomon builds, he builds with the help of a draft. He takes from all the men of all the tribes and geniusly administrates a rotation so that they can still maintain their own farms and then come work on the temple in Jerusalem. And he spends seven years on rotation, bringing these men in to build the temple. And let me tell you, they're into it. They're all about it. But once the temple is finished and dedicated, the draft continues. It continues for another 13 years so that Solomon can build his own palace. And then it continues while he builds a massive stable for his world-renowned collection of horses. And a bunch of other building projects across his life to the degree that when Solomon's son takes the throne, Israel sends a delegation and says, your father dealt harshly with us by making us serve him all of his days. If you want the people to receive you as king, let us go. Here's another thing that we see happen. Now, God has promised to make Solomon wealthy, and he does so. But Solomon is also wise. And so he takes that wealth and he multiplies it. He invests it. Remember, it's Solomon who says in Ecclesiastes, cast your bread on the water and it will come back to you. Which any Christian investment agency will have somewhere in their paperwork. Okay? It's about risk and reward. And Solomon knows that. He sends out ships all over the world and begins trade like Marco Polo thousands of years before. But if you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, it gives instructions for kings. And they're pretty simple, actually. One, they have to be a Jewish. They have to be an Israelite. Two, I have to pick them. Okay, Both of those have been taken care of. Three, they are to write their own copy of the law of the Lord and read it every day. And then it gives three things they're not to do. And here's what they are. Don't multiply wealth. Don't multiply horses, especially going to Egypt, which is like the horse capital of the ancient world, because I took you out of there. And don't multiply wives. And all you have to do is read one chapter in Solomon's life to see him proactively pursuing all those things. 
to the nth degree. And isn't that some, to some degree the conundrum of Solomon? Like he's so wise in administering justice and so foolish in, in the clear statements about his own life according to scripture. Isn't, isn't that one of the contentions or the tensions? How can he be wise and yet behave so foolishly? But we need to remember that he doesn't lose his wisdom. He uses it foolishly. Right? It's a skill, and he very skillfully has the opportunity to sin in ways that you can never imagine. We're told that he maintains in his house a collection of wives and concubines numbering a thousand. And do you know why none of us have a thousand spouses? Our checkbooks don't go that far, right? It, which is why it's recorded, because it's, it's a personification. It's a picture of his wealth. And it's also completely unjustifiable, unjust, right? There, there is no, no one on earth who would defend him and go, well, right, it's just not there. He does these things. And the wives in particular become a problem because it tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Side note, that list is significant. Those are the enemies of Israel. Okay. Verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Now I want you to notice our narrator here knows what's going on. He's not hiding the sins of Solomon by any means. And he paints the glory of one side brightly and the darkness of the other in strong contrast. He puts them right here because they both coexist. I became aware of a quote from Jung, the psychologist this week that I've been chewing on all week. The brighter the persona, the darker the shadow. Now, the image works, right? Just because that's, that's how, how things work in life, impersonally. But why does it work when we think about human beings? It's because we've never seen a person in a position of glory who didn't harness it for their own destruction and the destruction of their people. And Solomon is on that list. He doesn't just ruin the lives of the people of Israel. He ruins his own life. And so if we read the books of wisdom in the way that most people believe we should, with Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes all coming from the pen of Solomon, by the end of his life, he's despairing and wondering what life is for. And what does he tell us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes? I've had wealth. I've had women. I've had pleasure. And it's vanity. And yet he is potentially in relationship with the God who made him and has a personal name for him, by the way, Jedediah, my beloved. And because he turns to these other women, his heart turns away from the Lord. And he doesn't just build a temple for God, but he builds other temples for other gods. In fact, he puts one to Molech on what we know as the Mount of Olives. And, and by the way, if you haven't been to Israel, 
if you stand on the Temple Mount and you throw a rock, you hit the Mount of Olives. We think mounts and we think like Rainier. That's not what it means. It's it, Jerusalem is very tight, very small. You can, you can, it's a football field length at most. Here he builds this beautiful temple as his God desired, as his father desired him to for the God of Israel. And, you know, his next door neighbor is another temple for one of his pagan wives. And the story doesn't end there. Because after Solomon comes Solomon's son. And Solomon's son does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And so on and so forth. Until after a hundred years of reign, God finally lets Israel experience the full consequence of their choices and go into exile under Babylon. That's the contradiction of glory. And I think as Americans, we understand this better than anybody right now because we're realizing that it is false narrative to tell the history of America as if it was golden and then somehow went wrong. It was glorious and gloriously contradicted. It carried with it the seeds of its own destruction and we can tell ourselves our stories. And no doubt Solomon did about the glory days of his kingdom. But it wasn't the whole story. Now I want to show you a maneuver that the Old Testament authors do that we need to do in our own hearts. And for that, I want you to turn to Chronicles. Now, in your Bible, it goes First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. But Chronicles is a retelling of Samuel and Kings. Okay, here's the difference: Chronicles is written after exile. Chronicles is written after the people are dwelling in Babylon and looking back. And now they're not just trying to tell their history, they're trying to understand it. And so notice here what happens in 1 Chronicles 17. Notice how it opens here in verse 1. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that's in your heart, for God is with you. Sound familiar? Deja vu. This is taken directly out of what we read in 1 Samuel. And actually, lots of Chronicles is that way, where it's just cut and pasted from 1 Samuel. But that gives us an opportunity to pay attention to what's different. And so I want to read with you the same verses we started with this morning, but from Chronicles. And I don't expect you to do this. I have the advantage of having studied this, so I already know the answer. But I want you to pay attention and see if you can spot the differences. Look with me here in verse 10. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel... And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up one of your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from the one who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. Boy, it's close, isn't it? The majority of it is word for word. And there's really only four changes. One we don't really have to concern ourselves with because here the chroniclist doesn't name Saul by name. He just says the one who came before you. But the other three are significant. 
Okay. The first one is in verse 11 when he says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. But here's what it says in 1 Samuel, out of your own body. Everything else is the same, but he drops here this idea that it's going to be out of your own body. In other words, the chroniclist is starting to pull back from Solomon. We see the same thing um, in verse 13. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love for him. Wait, do you remember what it said in 1 Samuel? And if he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of man. Now, I believe that the Old Testament authors are divinely inspired. And so the fact that there could be prophetic pointings to the coming of Jesus is totally valid. But even if that weren't the case here, do you recognize why that would be significant to the authors of Chronicles? Because sin is the sticky wicket. It's the problem with the whole scenario. How in the world can God be faithful to David's household if David's household can't be faithful to him? And so he anticipates and he looks beyond and he longs for a king who can live as righteous as his calling. And then the most profound of changes is in verse 14. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. In First Samuel, you know what it says? But I will confirm him in your house and your kingdom forever. But God here takes ownership. And for the first time in the Old Testament, refers to his own kingdom. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, this is its beginning here in Chronicles. And notice what that means. It means that somehow God is going to make it so that the kingdom of David is not just the kingdom of David, but is truly God's kingdom, which requires what? That David is not king, but God himself is king. Now, I wish we had time to go through the prophets and watch as they take this proclamation and bring it into their own messages So that, for example, Isaiah says that one will come who is both the root and the branch of David. The one who David came from and who came from David. I wish I had time to take you back to Micah that we were in a few months ago and return to the Christmas text, right? Out of Bethlehem will come a king. His days will be from forever before, right? All of these things are drawing from this idea. Because the kingdom of God on earth won't work unless God comes to earth and becomes king. Now, there's one last contrast here that I want to make. Because we could easily celebrate there that, that, that the shadow of Solomon's kingdom will someday come in Christ. But you need to recognize one last thing this morning. That if we exchange the contradiction of glory... We don't just get straight glory, we get a paradox of glory. And here's what I mean. I mean that whereas Solomon was born in a palace, there was no room for Jesus at the end and he was born in a feeding trough for animals. Where Solomon experienced tremendous wealth, Jesus didn't have a house or a pocketbook and had no place to lay his head. The most profound paradox of the glory of Jesus Christ is what he prays in the Gospel of John in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Right before his disciples, he says, Father, now glorify me with the glory I had before. And if you keep reading, it's very clear that John is not pointing us to the resurrection, but the cross. Jesus sees the glory that he is destined for in the brutal and unjust and violent death he suffers. That's the paradox. That's Philippians that I mentioned earlier. Did not consider equality of God as something to be held on to. Laid aside his glory, made himself of no reputation, no fame. Became obedient as the point of a slave. Not a ruler, but a servant. Even to the point of death and the very death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him because his glory is holistic. He doesn't just have a position of glory. He doesn't just have ability of glory. He has the character of glory. Jesus is the only one with a resume sufficient to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because his heart was not turned in the darkness, so it will not be turned in the light. Because what he did for his people, he did at great cost for himself and without selfishness, but for your sakes, as we saw this morning. And so when we say thy kingdom come, remember that it's not a man like Solomon on the throne, but the God man, Jesus Christ, who is perfect in his love and in his worship of his father and in his care for his brothers and sisters who are now his in human flesh. And that creates a tension for us because we're called to a similar paradox of glory. We're called to live in the same reality, to take up our own crosses and not settle, not just out there, not just in our presidential races or our mayoral races or in our little societies or you know, clubs at school, but in our own hearts. We're not to settle for a contradicted glory that embraces the external realities and doesn't deal with the internal. Let's pray. Jesus, you told those who were listening to you as you stood in Jerusalem that the Queen of Sheba came all the way to Jerusalem and recognized the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, you said, one who is greater than Solomon is here. You are not just king because God made you king, Jesus. You are king because you are worthy. And we want to surrender our wills and our lives to you and long for your return because you are worthy. And we want to model our love after a love like yours, not just because you command us to, but because you are worthy. And we want to seek your kingdom, even if it's just the shadow of the substance that will come. We want to seek to build that here, to see it here, to represent it here, because you are worthy. I pray, Lord, as we read our Christmas story with our family, as we open our gifts under the tree, 
as we sing both our Christmas carols and and all of the Christmas classics, uh, you know, of the season, that we would be filled with the awe of your glory. You are son of David. And for that, we praise you. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.